Don't worry. I brought my rapping Ronnie Reagan tape. It always makes the trip go faster. <laughs> you know something? He did say well a lot. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. And unfortunately, my co-host Luke Savage is not present today. He has fallen down a well. But don't worry, uh, rescue teams are there right now to save Luke and to treat any injuries he may have sustained. Until then, we're keeping him in our thoughts and prayers. So stepping up to the plate tonight is a fellow content warrior. He is a writer, comedian, co-host of the Pod Damn America podcast, and a contributor to Redacted Tonight. And his name is Anders Lee. Thank you for being here. Hey, Anders Lee here. Uh, I'm honored. First time, long time. I, I understand Canada is a very large country with a small population, so it, it I guess it's taking those rescuers a long time to get out to wherever <laughs> the, well, the well that Will is. Yeah, sorry, your Will that Luke is in. Yeah, there's there's a team from Nova Scotia and another team from Saskatchewan, and like we're, <laughs> we're seeing who can get there quicker. So I want to ask you about a couple of things that you've done recently. First of all, Redacted Tonight is part of the RT television network, formerly Russia Today. And uh, funnily enough, when one watches your videos on YouTube, they all carry a little disclaimer that says RT is funded in whole or part by the Russian government, right. uh-huh. uh, which I find which I find that very funny. Uh, how does it feel to be funded? in whole or part by the Russian government? I mean, it's a nice little sort of addition, a nice little asterisk to the work. I I don't have a blue check on Twitter. I think they stopped (laughs) giving us those. And I've been asking Twitter to at least say that about all of my tweets, but they they haven't granted me that yet. (laughs) But it is, is, I I will admit, kind of cool to to have that on my content. I never thought that would happen. Do people get upset about it? Do people instinctively, do you ever instinctively get people who are angry at you and say, well, fuck this guy, he's he's in the pocket of the Kremlin or whatever? Oh, yeah, there are like thousands, if not more people who that, you know, there's no point in challenging me on anything or or going back and forth with me because I am a a puppet of Putin, which, you know, that saves me a lot of grief having to deal with um, centrists and people (laughs) who's whose politics I don't uh, want to really waste my time delving into, but I still managed to do it anyway. And I've been, uh, I went after Seth Abramson recently, who writes his sort of uh, his meta fiction on Twitter, these narrative threads about the latest Russiagate conspiracies. And uh, I, in the segment mentioned, I, I had a jab at him that he had a big hairy butt and he came back on Twitter. Uh, Spot the lie. I don't know. Right. <laughs> He said, according to him, everything in the segment was false except for that line. Uh, but when I asked him to name some of the untrue claims I made, he, he didn't respond. So, Well, it's nice when there are some issues where people can come across the aisle and find some point of connection. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, I, oh, uh, one more question about that. When you're sure. doing your taxes or something, or you have to like go to an airport or anything, do you ever get uh, harassed about it? Not yet. Uh, the, I mean, it's a independent corporation. The funding does come from the Russian government, but the the company itself is not a state 
apparatus. So I don't think the IRS really looks into that too carefully. But uh, and no, no airline issues yet. I I, th- I think still being you know white and. Scandinavian does me some favors in that department. Oh, thank God. So people can find your pieces on YouTube. One of the recent ones took on the subject of philanthropy, which I think we can all agree is very bad. Uh, (laughs) Philanthropy is something that, I mean, you know, it's a very misunderstood topic because like who's against giving to charity Right. But you point out in the piece that philanthropy is, you know, it's it's just another way for the most part right now for rich people to not actually pay their taxes. Do you mind expanding on that thesis a little bit? Right. So I tried to, in the piece, go into the historical origins of it and how around the turn of the 20th century, that's really when uh, philanthropy, as we know it today, began. And it was a not so subtle reaction to left-wing movements who, who wanted to redistribute wealth and, you know, take control for the working class of the state and apparatuses of the, the economy. And it was really a sort of a, a, a buffer against that. And that's, I think, what it continues to be, although the, the threat of the left has diminished quite significantly since then. But now I think people tend to, to buy their own BS, if you will, on that. Uh, I'm not going to ask if I can swear on here. I'm just going to not swear. So we, we avoid that. You, you, can swear, podcast you can swear if you want. I think, I think the folks can listen to a BS, whatever, whatever that <laughs> means in its, in its full form. I just wanted to avoid the trope of asking, can I swear on here, which is, uh, <laughs> podcasting uh, classic. But yeah, I think today they, they, they we are really in a state where the ruling class believes in what they're doing, but it is most a lot of what they do. And there's specifics that a lot of people have written about. I'm not just, you know, completely making wild accusations. Don't actually get to the core problems, right? If philanthropy actually worked, then it wouldn't exist anymore because they would have put themselves out of business. Uh, so there's just, you know, so like so- the, as you, as you say, the point is not to actually, you know, get clean drinking water or eradicate poverty or give everybody a place to live, you know, because if that were to happen, the industry would, would cease. Yeah. It's become a, a sector unto itself, the third sector mm-hmm. as it's called. And, you know, and, and it almost always, from the large philanthropies, uh, the Clinton Global Initiative and the Gates, we'll see. They're, they look to be on the rocks right now, but uh, people like oh, that. Oh, I'm still rooting for those two. I <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that would be a great romantic comedy if that I would could imagine you reviewing it at some point uh, <laughs> about the Gates' rekindling their flame. But in a lot of these cases, the money ends up going to uh, microloans or businesses and grants and things. And these are problems that the market just can't really fix. So you're just trying to heal the wounds of capitalism with more capitalism that that tends not to work. Uh, and there's a great section in the book that Anand Giridharadas wrote. And, you know, not huge fan of everything that comes out of that guy's mouth or Twitter account. But uh, he wrote, I think, a, a decent. I didn't read all of it, but the, in towards the end, he actually sits down with Bill Clinton and says to him, uh, look, you care about childhood obesity. Why why aren't we talking about, you know, better school lunch programs, subsidies for vegetables and, you know, tighter regulation on on junk food? Like, why are we why do we keep giving these grants and things to to companies and foundations that are just throwing money at it? And and his answer was somebody has to make money off of it or it's not going to work. That's just the way these people see the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, I think, the problem with philanthropy 
uh, in short. And uh, not to say there's no good that comes out of giving to charity or anything like that, but at the end of the day, it, I think the people who are affected by it should have control and input. It shouldn't be coming from on high, someone deciding to cleanse themselves morally by you know giving uh, a homeless person somewhere to sleep for a night. Um, and as we've seen, it usually doesn't work out that way. It trickles down into a huge sector that's become sort of a, uh, a bureaucracy, really. And more than ever, governments regard the philanthropic industry as a way to outsource that's their right. own responsibilities. You mentioned the New Teacher Project, which sounds very dystopian. What is that? Right. Yeah. There's a, and I uh, should mention the piece I read. One of the pieces in preparation for this, the one that I cite, is was in Catalyst uh, a few months ago about about the third sector and uh, how uh, it's it's very much in with the charter school movement uh, of which I am a product. So if anyone is listening and you're an opponent of charter schools, you're a public education union advocate, you could. Feel free to use me as an example of what will happen to your children if they go to a charter. Uh, but basically what they they did was um, found ways to slash budgets in, in, in schools instead of uh, dealing with what are real problems with uh, re- student retention and test scores and all these things, uh, literacy, graduation rates, all this stuff. They just found a way to, to cut some, some money out of the budget that didn't address any of that and then sort of patted themselves on the back for it. And schools end up closing. Uh, that's another piece of this, too, that comes from sort of the waiting for Superman view of things that you need more competition in education. You need to root out the bad teachers. This is a big thing in the U.S. anyway. And uh, schools have closed. And it turns out that that's not the best thing for a kid to constantly be firing their teachers and closing their schools. You should just give more money to the schools and give the teachers less stressful work environment. And uh, that'll be a better situation. But that that sort of cuts against the um, neoliberal, for lack of a better term, mentality that a lot of these people are wrapped up in. We'll get to the movie in a moment. But before we do, I want to ask you about uh, one of your signature achievements, which was you (laughs) attended CPAC in, I think, 2020. That's right. What was that experience like? Was it great to see so many like-minded people just (laughs) together to finally feel a little less isolated in this world? It was, oh God, it was really nauseating. Uh, I hadn't been around that many conservatives or people I knew to be conservatives since uh, I was a little kid, I think, and before I was really politically aware, just knowing everyone in, you know, within a few feet of you is um, hell bent on destroying the world is uh, a depressing environment. And it was sort of stressful, actually, at the time, because I I was just kind of going to see what happened, right? We didn't have anything that planned out. But so I just kind of took it person by person and thought, oh, maybe we could get away with a funny, funny gag here, funny gag there. And it uh, it it became a segment, but yeah, people some people were suspicious of it. There were a couple people who were like, "RT, way to go!" <laughs> but uh, did some people not know what RT was? I assume. Uh, yeah, there were some people who were not familiar with it. Some people who were and uh, were fans. I think a couple people got wise to it being a joke, so I sort of um, tried to. Uh, I pretended to be a conservative myself. Uh, and, what were some of the things you asked them? Well, in the, in the segment, I asked about flag pins. There are a couple of people who were not wearing flag pins. I made sure to wear a flag <laughs> pin that day. And, uh, you know, so a woman was wearing green instead of red, white, and blue. So I had that uh, upper hand as an American. I could uh, prom- I was promoting the country a little better. So I asked them about that, tried to, f- to find the hypocrisy. And I asked about the wall. 
Actually, probably the biggest thing I asked about was that year's theme, which was socialism. So I asked people to to explain socialism, and as happens a lot of the time, they ended up sort of describing capitalism. And uh, I did get one guy to admit also, and this was early 2020, that he was much, much more worried about the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nomination uh, than anyone else who was a Democratic contender at the time. So so that was good to hear uh, from yeah. my vantage point. But well, I'm glad to hear somebody's happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I guess that would have been one of the last things you did before the pandemic. So what a great yeah. thing to go out on. That's right. And there was somebody, I think, with uh, COVID at, at CPAC. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was that day, but um, I <laughs> was close to contracting it. So. Uh, did, did you see Borat? Was he there? He was there on a different day, unfortunately. Ah, too bad. Um, Scott Walker was there. I got to, I chased him down an escalator and asked um, if he had eaten any ham sandwiches that day. Yeah, that, those are the big celebs, really. Well, I'd like to now talk about the biggest celeb of all. His name is Oliver North. <laughs> That's right. And he is, uh, sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. And he's the yes. subject of the 1996 documentary, A Perfect Candidate. That's the dramatic thing I always do before before I lead into a clip. Uh, <laughs> a, little, a little unnatural. Putting a bullet in Rob is like, you know, like shooting a corpse. I think the guy's dead. I think the problem isn't Rob, it's us. People have, do people feel comfortable about North? And the answer is no, they don't feel comfortable yet with Oliver North. And, and the job we've got to do is try to make them comfortable. If they get comfortable, they'll come home. I think the only way you do that is remind people that there are some serious differences of philosophy and that North is a hell of a guy. He's a family guy. People do like Oliver North. Um, and I just don't think you do that with negative stuff. Uh, for those who don't know Oliver North, I'll just lay out a few crucial details. He was a member of Ronald Reagan's National Security Council, who became the key figure in probably the key scandal of the Reagan administration, the Iran-Contra affair. It was alleged that Oliver North masterminded plans to exchange arms with Iran in exchange for the release of three American hostages, and that the profits from the arms sale would be channeled to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. This was in violation to a law passed by Congress that prohibited U.S. funds going to the Contras. It was also a political disaster because Iran took three more hostages after releasing the other three. So uh, just just bad news all around. And Oliver North later admitted to misleading Congress when he was charged for this. He defended himself on the grounds that the Contras were freedom fighters. So, uh, you know, maybe it was maybe it was illegal, but it was it was morally right. Mm -hmm. And he was convicted of three felony counts accepting an illegal gratuity, aiding and abetting in the obstruction of a congressional inquiry, and ordering the destruction of documents through his secretary. But his convictions were vacated on appeal when it was determined that witnesses in his trial may have been influenced by testimony he gave before Congress, for which he had been granted immunity. In other words, Oliver North is an innocent man, walks <laughs> free among us, and we all owe him a big apology. That's right. And he's certainly innocent under God's law, yes. uh, which sometimes supersedes that of the United States. This film catches up with him in 1994 when he's running for a U.S. Senate seat in Virginia as a Republican, hoping to unseat the Democratic incumbent Chuck Robb. Now, Anders, you suggested this for our podcast some time ago, and it's been on our list for a while. What made you interested in this film? And uh, are you interested? Do you have in, an interest in Oliver North generally? 
I have been uh, getting more interested in him uh, recently because I've been researching sort of the 80s and, and Iron Contra for a project. But this movie originally came across my radar when I was 16. And without getting too autobiographical here, I spent the first 12 years of my life in the state of Virginia. So I was a resident of Virginia at the time of this uh, this movie came out and was shot. And uh, both my parents voted in this election. Little too young to remember it. But then I moved to Minnesota uh, when I was 12, and I was working at this video store a couple of years later. And I had always had, um, at least as an adolescent, sort of the voice I have now. I, I, I talk in kind of a, you know, kind of an odd voice for like a young man, someone of my age. You sound and like I, Jimmy Stewart there. <laughs> I, talk, right. I talk like a young man. It's all, yeah, it's always difficult to do an impression of, of oneself, but <laughs> I sound sort of a lot like Chuck Robb in the movie. And people <laughs> would always ask me like, why do you sound this way? People in Minnesota. And then I realized, oh, I guess this is a Virginia accent. I sound like this bumbling, like old guy. Um, and so I had that realization working in the video store uh, when I put this on the TV. And also just uh, it was fascinating to watch just shows what Virginia politics is like and what politics were like in the 90s, which was a time period I was fascinated back then. So, yeah, I uh, this was all this has always been one of my favorite documentaries because I think it, it has so many just perfect uh, little lines and moments and uh, really is a good sort of um, distillation of American politics. It's often referred to, uh, I mean, it's not referred to very often in general, but when it is referred to by the filmmakers, they call it the evil twin of the war room, hmm. uh, which I know you guys have, have done an episode on. And I believe one of the producers slash directors was uh, also worked on the war room, the uh, 94 movie about Carville and Stephanopoulos. And I, yeah, and it's, and that one is kind of tough to watch in retrospect with someone with, you know, in our general political milieu, because it's sort of glorifying, you know, the neoliberal democratic party, but this is really showing the dark underbelly of that. And I think um, is a more honest portrait of what American campaigns and what American political life has been like for the past uh, 30 or so years. Yeah. Well, there are not a lot of people to root for in the documentary. Um, Right. As as Oliver North reemerges, he reinvents himself as a social conservative. He is constantly comparing himself to Christ, having, you know, <laughs> taken the slings and arrows. And he takes on a lot of socially conservative issues. The Confederate flag is an issue in this mm -hmm. campaign. And he develops a reputation as being this conduit of people's anger. You know, he's mm. the popular, the right wing populist demagogue. Meanwhile, Chuck Robb, not the most inspiring candidate, pretty much the definition of like a bad democratic politician, somebody yeah. who uh, arrived on the scene as a classic socially sort of liberal, fiscally conservative guy. There's a funny scene in this movie where there are some striking workers at a factory in town and they've brought scab workers in to replace them. And a reporter is asking him, well, what's your position on this? And he says, my, my position is the same as it has always been. And they said, <laughs> well, what, what's your position? I've not, I've not changed my position. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of candidate we're dealing with. And uh, the race is finally shaken up by the emergence of something like a sex scandal. It's revealed that the former Miss Virginia and a former Playboy centerfold named Ty Collins claims to have had an affair with him, claims to have attended cocaine parties with him. Mm -hmm. 
Chuck Robb says that she only gave him a massage and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there were, maybe there was cocaine at the parties. I don't know. I didn't see it. There were a lot of people at the the parties and the issues of values and honesty become sort of the, the fulcrum of the campaign. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, the, probably the most fascinating thing about the documentary for me is the way that you see the strategists behind Oliver North find a way to either neutralize or reposition the Iran Contra affair in a way that in a way that almost works, you know, right? Yeah, they sort of because both candidates have lied, but there is honor in Oliver North's lie. He was doing it for a higher purpose. And I think he says that at some point, there was no higher purpose in Chuck Robb lying hilariously saying that he uh, yes, he did go up into a hotel room with a Playboy model. But they and they did drink champagne, but there was only a massage, nothing else, which is just comical that he would expect anybody to believe that. You know, and so his lie is 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 not one of integrity. It's not for a greater good. And it's lying and honesty becomes, as you said, kind of the main theme of this campaign. And Chuck Robb takes the position that he has never told a lie ever. (laughs) And he challenges the press to talk to everyone he's worked with and ask them if they've ever witnessed him telling an untruth which is such a bold Uh, strategy because he's the american political figure at this point who's probably the most associated with lying it's it's such a it's such a powerful statement yeah because yeah well i think it's it's funny because uh one of the main characters don baker who's the reporter covering this he presses chuck rob on this and he's like are you really saying that you've as an adult you've never told a lie and finally he gets him to say well maybe at like a roast or something i've exaggerated about something uh but that's the closest thing to a lie he's said and i think the strategy uh, of the north team to to compare the lies kind of backfires because the people voting in the election say well yeah they are both liars but it's actually way worse the one oliver north told because it was illegal and Chuck Robb is a politician, and of course he's gonna fool around and and be a boob. So, but we can tolerate that. But it's probably not good to elect somebody who's lied to Congress and almost got sent to jail for it. But you know something about my opponent. My opponent is a document shredding, Constitution trashing, Commander in Chief bashing. Ayatollah-loving, arms-dealing, criminal-protecting, resume-enhancing, Noriega-coddling, Swiss-banking, law-breaking, letter-faking, self-serving, snake-oil salesman who can't tell the difference between the truth and a lie. Bill Clinton appears in the documentary. The race is ultimately tilted when the former governor, Doug Wilder, endorses Chuck Robb, and Bill Clinton appears at that endorsement. Uh, he delivers this very Clintonian speech where he says something like, you know, we're, all, we're always trying to find someone to demonize for our problem. So once we demonized black people, now we demonize liberals. And then it sort of transitions into this, you know, kind of covertly, you got to you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and find the fire within kind of speech. You got to turn the light on in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm I I feel like the specter of Bill Clinton sort of hangs over it too because he's he's another political figure who's just from from his very emergence has been so associated with with lying. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether people perceive that the lies mattered or not, you know, he was he was a mate. He he was and is 
Like it feels like one of his major legacies is that he's the guy who helped normalize political lying. So I don't know, it feels like that's sort of in the background. It sort of feels like they're living in Bill Clinton's world. And that's the world that that these debates are being argued in. Right. That's interesting, because he really this is really is the first era where it's um, it's been sort of normalized to investigate a politician's sex life, right? We had Gary Hart, which was sort of a result of uh, the post-Watergate press corps wanting to find a scandal, and they found one that doesn't really matter, but it still destroyed someone's campaign. And then Bill Clinton, um, that became the sort of the great, his great achievement is that he was over, it was able to overcome many sex scandals and still, and continue to overcome them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was his sort of like, you know, David and Goliath narrative uh, is this guy versus the media, and he keeps, you know, wounding himself with uh, with these scandals. Uh, but it, it not every politician is as good as Bill Clinton. Uh, so at that time, that's that's really, I think, when we began seeing more and more sex scandals that um, were ending people's careers, as almost happened with with Chuck Robb here. When did you move out of Virginia? It was 2003. So it's a couple years sort of at the yeah the height of the Iraq war war on terror what can era. you say about the political culture there when when you lived there and how it's evolved since have you sort of kept track of virginia yeah a bit i mean now it's it's a pretty dependable blue state um but at the time we lived there it definitely was not it, it did not uh and it's funny i say blue state um Around this time in the 90s, they would switch off every four years, which uh, which states were the blue states and which were the red states. So it was always a Republican state when I was living there. Uh, and because of 9-11, really, they had all these contractors moving to D.C., the D.C. area, especially northern Virginia. And they had more you know liberal social views. And so it, it changed the political landscape. Um, but at the time, there was still, you know, a, especially where we lived in, in northern Virginia, there was an enclave of sort of coastal liberals. My parents are both from the north. But the, that it was a, a strange kind of tension, though, because if you went just a little further south, it got very conservative. Like where I went to elementary school was extremely right wing. Uh, I went to a, a evangelical uh, school as a kid. Uh, everybody was a Republican. And if you went down even just not that far, like, you know, a half hour, an hour south of, of northern Virginia, I remember driving past this big farm that had a huge sign that said, uh, get U.S. out of U.N. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the the milieu in a lot of Virginia. And you see in the movie, one of the first scenes is at the state Republican convention, and they're letting a militia guy give a speech about uh, gun control. And he's talking about how in southwestern Virginia, you know, something is brewing. And this is right after Waco, right before Oklahoma City. So that was very much, you know, this, the far right definitely had a place in Virginia politics at the time. And it still does to an extent. But back then, uh, we forget that was really just all over America, but especially in the South, the militia movement, the extreme right was really present. The film also gives the impression of it being a place of really gaping uh, racial wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when the public debate over the Confederate flag starts to take over, there's that sort of ugly scene where an older woman is talking about yes. how well, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it has it has only a little little bit to do with slavery. It's about states' rights, and they don't understand that because they're always putting race onto everything. Right. This is a, a daughter of the uh, 
American Revolution and a daughter of the Confederacy. I think she's in, in those societies and she the best part is she pronounces racism as racism. Yes, yes. Did, did you sense a lot of that when you were growing up, that kind of racial uh, tension, for lack of a better word? Not a ton. Uh, not not where I was living, really. I mean, the school I went to was was predominantly white and uh, Northern Virginia is, is pretty diverse, but it, it, the, I wouldn't say there was tension there because even at that time, I, I would say probably most of Northern Virginia, at least the you know people I was surrounded with were transplants and you know not originally from virginia virginia but down south it certainly certainly was a factor one of the uh, almost like painfully banal things you can say about this documentary is that it like it uh it uh foreshadows the rise of trump which is like <laughs> one, one of the one of the lamest things you can say about any documentary but it, you know if, if i wanted to do like the really kind of lame uh lib reading of the film i would say that it's you know this this man oliver north with you know major character issues uh, uh, comes in and very sort of cynically adopts certain signifiers of the far right and then destabilizes everyone's understanding of what is what is true and what is what is morally right mm. and uh, becomes this conduit for a lot of free-floating rage and also coasts along on a certain name recognition because he, he may be infamous but he's still famous uh, does anything of that resonate with you yeah I mean I think it goes to how much of Trump Trump is not new, right? We, you know, they, he supposedly started this thing of alternative facts. Well, Republicans have been distorting reality for a very long time, and Oliver North was certainly doing that in his campaign. And I think maybe the key difference between him and Trump is North said, yeah, I made a boo-boo, I didn't know, I told a fib, but it was for a good cause, And whereas Trump would just bypass it. He would keep spinning and say, well, what I said actually was true because of X, Y, and Z, whereas, um, you know, you couldn't really get away with that back then. Nor could you get away with, you know, if you look at someone like Bob Dole, who um, refuses to endorse Oliver North in the movie, mm-hmm. this is a couple years before he his, his last presidential run, his rhetoric, I would say, is pretty different from Trump in terms of, of race. It's sort of race neutral in and of itself. I mean, it, it's all code words, right? But he's not really inveighing too much against, you know, the Muslims or anything uh, Trump would say. But I, I would say North was a little more towards the wing of the Republican Party that was, you know, friendly with militias and overtly racist, um, because that's who he needed uh, at that time. And that's who had uh, beginning in the 80s when he became a national figure. He became a very popular folk hero among people on the right and on the far right. Uh, So I think that's, you know, consciously or unconsciously, I think that's what he grabbed onto. And yeah, in some ways, it's a precursor to Trump, but um, it's not all that knew a lot of the uh, the dishonesty. Do you think his conversion to religion was sincere? I kind of bought it because it was just so descriptive about the crown of thorns and all that stuff. And, you know, he... It's not like when Trump talks about religion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Two Corinthians, yeah. I kind of bought it, but it's, it's possible that he just, that was his homework assignment. Uh, and he actually did it, unlike Trump. <laughs> you can't feel badly for running a positive campaign. I don't regret that, but I, I don't, I don't regret that. But and somehow, you know, look, the winners write the history in this stuff, and in the end, the negative stuff sticks and it works. Well, the election was won by Chuck Robb, although it was a very close election. Chuck Robb got forty-five point six percent of the vote. 
Oliver North got 42.9% of the vote, and the third-party candidate, Marshall Coleman, got just a little bit under 12%. The film ends with one of North's consultants uh, leaving the concession speech very angry that that he had let up on Chuck Robb a little bit, had taken his foot off the gas in, uh, in terms of demonizing him and criticizing him. Uh, I, have, I have to admit, I haven't really kept up with Oliver North's life since then, although I understand he's become a very well-paid uh, Republican public intellectual and, mm-hmm. you know, regular on such shows as Hannity and uh, uh, at a time, the president of the National Rifle Association, though not anymore. Uh, do you keep up with Oliver North? From time to time. Yeah, I know he had a show on Fox called War Stories with Oliver North. He's sort of their go-to military expert. And I believe he uh, consulted on Call of Duty Black Ops 2 as well. (laughs) And ultimately, that will be his legacy. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I think the dynamic between Chuck Robb and uh, Douglas Wilder is an interesting one, too. Uh, I certainly wouldn't compare Wilder to Bernie Sanders, but there was sort of a, a tension there between like the left and the right of the party. And and you see it at the beginning of the movie, it seems like it's going to be a four-way race because Oliver North gets the nomination. J. Marshall Coleman, who's a moderate Republican, decides to run. And because of his dissatisfaction with Chuck Robb, Douglas Wilder, who was the first black governor of Virginia, is running as well to the left of, of everybody. Still not, you know, today what we would consider like progressive or left, but enough to call out Chuck Robb for wanting to literally, and he says this in a debate when he's asked about the the deficit, and he's they say, are you really going to cut programs for like poor and hungry people? And he says, I will take food from the mouths of widows and orphans if that is what is needed uh, to solve this deficit crisis. And he says, I know that's a provocative line. And Douglas Wilder has some great debate moments and says, it's a stupid line is what it is, and breaks out in applause. And the North team is loving this until Oliver North starts talking about how he's the most investigated person in America. And Wilder <laughs> says, yeah, that's for a good reason. <laughs> um, so he was maybe my favorite uh, character in the movie, although he does end up uh, dropping out, as you said, and endorsing Chuck Robb. But he sort of represents like the gutting of the left and the vanquishing, really, of the Rainbow Coalition at that time, you know, which, again, is not necessarily today what we would call, you know, DSA or NDP level of, of progressivism, but was a departure from politics in the 80s and and Carterism, right? You know, they at least wanted to uh, not buy into sort of the fiscal austerian program that Reagan had pushed through and that Clinton was embracing. Um, and there was a an emphasis on a multiracial democracy and, and working across the color line uh, on a class basis. He was part of that coalition. Douglas Wilder May was not exactly Jesse Jackson, but was at least saying not so fast. This is not a good idea. We don't need to become... Republicans, and we know what happened after that with uh, the end of Clintonism. Well, thank you for bringing this movie to the podcast. You couldn't have picked a more appropriate movie for us. And uh, you you picked a good movie, too, as opposed to yes. a, a lot of the political documentaries we watch. So I much appreciate it. Uh, can, I, can I ask you to tell the people where they can find you? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Anders Lee here. I'm on 
Instagram at Dursley One, and uh, my podcast is Pod Damn America. And uh, the show, as mentioned, is redacted tonight on YouTube and Portable.tv. Thanks again, and uh, we, I'd love to have you back on when Luke's here too. So that, yeah, uh, you know, I, when we when we were talking about this, Luke said, uh, you know, God, it's it's a shame that we're blowing the Anders appearance when I'm not there. So I, I think I think we can prove him wrong. So. Okay. And you weren't talking about the hockey player, Anders Lee, because I know no, uh, Canadian. Fuck it. Fuck it. The <laughs> episode is going in the trash. Ah, uh, yeah. He's a big Michael Moore fan as well. So. <laughs> uh, and until next time, uh, watch this drive. I can't believe you kids don't know about the great patriot Ollie North. In the 80s, there was Cold War drama. We bought the commies inside Nicaragua. Our friends were the Contras. Freedom was their mantra, so we sent them lots of money for guns and landmines. But Congress stopped the Contra money flow, just cause they moved a teeny bit of blow. But then a hero came forth, his name was Oliver North. He and Reagan went around the sissy Congress. Ollie North, Ollie North. You see, North secretly sold missiles to a harmless country called Iran that would always be a grateful ally. Then he gave the profits to the conference. Genius! But the sales were uncovered oh. by the press. <laughs> Reagan and North well, began to stress. Because what they did was technically high treason. But it was totally justified. North volunteered to take the blame. Save Reagan from prison rape shame The truth he did bury with his hot secretary Thanks to her shredder He got off totally scot-free Ollie North, Ollie North He's a soldier and a hero and a novelist And now he's on Fox News Crap, that's the end